You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. I want to say hello to the folks that are in the sanctuary. I know some of you, are, it's a secret over there. You don't want anybody to know. You found a little place to sit over there and not quite as crowded. It's so good for you. They want to connect with you and our friends at True Worth. Man, again, what a privilege it is that you allow us to worship with you, uh, separated by miles, but one in spirit. And I know more and more our online worshiping community at 1025 is growing. And some of you have invited over your neighbors to be in your home for breakfast. And y'all are eating breakfast right now and you're worshiping there because you don't like church. And you kind of are uncomfortable with coming to church. But you really still feel led to connect. And so wherever you are, maybe you're in a retirement center, you're driving, or you're in the hospital recovering from something. Uh, we just thank you for allowing us to be together uh, many locations, but just one spirit, one God, and, and, and one church. To our guest, I really want to say thank you for coming. I think it's kind of miraculous that you came on Super Bowl weekend. I know many of you also, you're thinking about us as Super Bowl uh, after you're getting ready for the big party and everything. And I will tell you, I have people asking me questions about, about the Super Bowl. And they're saying, Pastor, can we pray for the Patriots to lose? <laughs> I got people asking me, can you do that? And so I'm going to say, yeah, I, I guess you can. You know, if you want to. I'm not sure God really cares and is gonna, God's going to pay attention. But, yeah, you want to pray, you can do that. But it got me thinking, if you're going to pray about it, there has to be something in the Bible about it. So I, I started looking and trying to find something to kind of validate that it was okay to pray about it. And listen, I don't care who wins. I really don't care. I don't have a dog in the hunt. It makes no difference to me. I have no passion about how this turns out. But I did find a scripture I think it was important to kind of share with you. It's in the Bible. It's a vision about prophecy, and I'm not saying it's a prophecy. Don't bet on this. I'm just saying that because it's in chapter 8 of, of Daniel, verse 7. Now, some of you know that Tom Brady, they call, what do they call Tom Brady? They call him the what? The goat, which means the greatest of all time. So I'll, I'll just read this scripture. It says here, verse 7 of chapter 8, um, I saw the goat attack the ram furiously. Striking the ram, shattering its two horns, and the ram was powerless to stand against the goat. And the goat knocked the ram to the ground and trampled on it. And uh, I'm just reading the word of God. You can do it that what you want. That is not a prophecy. That's just the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You do it that what you want, okay? So I hope you have a good time today and enjoy your day with all your parties or, or whatever you do. If you're a guest and you came here, uh, we hope that you've so, thus far felt like this is a party because we believe uh, that worshiping it can be fun and that being in God's house can be fun. And you feel welcome here. It's a celebration of all that God has done. And we want you to feel welcome here. And so if, you, if you're a guest or if you brought a guest, please, if you're in the house, in the, on the campus, please stop by the Welcome Center. Uh, we just want to say hello, say thank you for coming extend a greeting to you and begin to build a little bit of a relationship. And if you'd allow us to do that, uh, we, we would really appreciate that. Uh, when you leave, a little reminder right now at the front end, we know Valentine's Day is right around the corner, and we like to help some of you because we know some of you are dating and you just really are bad at it. And there are some of you that are married and you forgot how to date. You just really, you forgot. And some of you, you're just beginning. And so we have some date night kits. You can walk out this door here, go to your left with this big old wooden wall with all these resources to give you to help your family, uh, lots of information and stuff, but also there's some kits, and so you can take them, and that's very basic, very fun, kind of lighthearted, but some good stuff in there I think you would enjoy, so please pick one of those up and be a part of that as Valentine's is right around the corner. All right, we have some guests here this morning. We're changing things up, so I'm going to invite uh, Kim and Casey. Y'all come up and kind of take your spot where I kind of let folks know what we're doing. We're in the fourth week of a message series we are calling My Crazy Family. And we're going to stop right here in the middle of this series. I've invited a couple of experts who live in this field on a daily basis and work with families, work with students, uh, work with kids about some very critical stuff. And they have skills and training in ways that I, I never have and, and never will. And we're, we're going to hear from them in a moment and hope it will be a blessing to some of you. I would remind you, this is our Bible verse. This is our grounding for the whole thing. It's a first Thessal, uh, Colossians, excuse me, 117. We're going to put the on the screen here, if you would, please, online even, in the sanctuary. Let's all through, say this together. Uh, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together, Colossians 1.17. Important to know the address. So we're going to take it off the screen now. And if you've been around here for this is your fourth week by now, 
uh, you probably should know what this is, right? So let's repeat it all together. Uh, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, Colossians 1.17. So your family is a thing. Your marriage is a thing. And when Jesus is at the center, we believe, we believe, and he's at the center, it can be held together. And so this morning, we're going to kind of unpack some stuff about real-life practical things to help you with that. Now, a couple little things before we do. You have in your notes, message notes, there's no fill in the blanks. You're going to want to take some notes, some of you about some stuff. You're going to hear some things that are going to help you. You want to take some notes, even though it's blank. You're going to want to do that. Secondly, if you're not checked in yet, make sure you check in. Remember, we've got a prize coming in six weeks. So for some of you, so check in that you're here, Facebook, Instagram, because there, there's going to be gifts coming at the end of six weeks that you don't want to miss out on. And offering, we are going to take offering in a little while. We're going to stop in the middle of our conversation, so we'll get to that in a few moments if you want to have that ready. But let's dive in right here. So I want you to meet to my left, your right, uh, Kim Garrett. Kim is an elder in this church. I've uh, been a member here for 15-plus years. She and her husband, Raph, and, and their, their two kids. And this is Casey uh, Gutierrez. Uh, Casey is kind of a guest here and a friend of our. He, I think you probably don't feel like a guest by now. This is your fourth worship time to be with us. They work together. Uh, they work at the same place in Fort Worth. I never can say it right. Recovery Resource Council. Recovery Resource Council. And she's my boss. And Right. You made that very clear that she is your boss. Right, so we'll see how that pe plays out here. You, you both, they both have master's degrees um, related to sociology, to psychology, uh, counseling. Casey is just a hair's breadth away from having his PhD. They both have lots of training and cert certifications and different stuff that we go through. They're licensed counselors. This is what they do for a living is help families get through stuff, okay? Um, so that's what, kind of where we're going. They're both veterans. Both are veterans. Uh, Casey here is from in the military, 10 years, got out as a captain. I think that's correct. Served in Iran and Afghanistan, uh, several, and still works with veterans today. Right? I Iraq, not Iraq. Iraq, not excuse Iraq. me, Iraq, excuse me, Iraq. Yeah, not Iran, Iraq, excuse me. Iraq uh, and Afghanistan. And today you work with some veterans and some things. That and their families. And yes. their families. So he, he is a veteran. Uh, Kim, too, is a veteran. She has two children who have left the nest. She has been through the war zone of parenting. And she is a veteran, and she knows about all sorts of dynamics and issues regarding that, and she survived, and she's still alive. And so besides their, their personal stuff, uh, they have a lot of professional experience to, to share with us. And look, let's get to know Casey a little bit. Casey, you're, you're married. Or your wife's name is Emily. Is that correct? And, and she's working on her Ph.D. Yeah. Up at Syracuse, New York, uh, public policy. I don't understand what that is, but she's doing that. She's pretty smart. Very smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I asked you already, I really think it's a good idea. When, you, when she gets her doctorate, you're, it's going to be Dr. Casey and Dr. Emily. <laughs> he did that in the last service, and I learned quick, so i gotta—I got to ask my wife about that. <laughs> I, I, I don't think we're ever going to do that, but I still have to run it by her first. She's just kind of in charge. <laughs> so, so, you, so you have two bosses. And your wife. Absolutely okay. correct. All right. And that's what works, I guess, right? And I like it. Like you that. like it that way? You like it that way? All right. Casey, I, I want to give you a moment. I, I mean, something to have some fun with, but also, y'all are not psychologists, as I kind of put out there, not, but you are psychotherapists. Both of you are psychotherapists. But will you kind of kind of handle this little matter here, kind of a house cleaning thing before we dive into our subject matter here? Well, it's, it's really an honor and a privilege to have any client in our office, the same as uh, to be said for this. Uh, thank you for having us, and it's an honor and a privilege to be here. Uh, I'm going to cut a lot of this to kind of the bottom line here. Uh, all this stuff we're going to talk about is full of flaws. It's human-made. It's theory. It's psychobabble most of it, and it doesn't fit everybody. It's not one size fits all. Uh, we all have different personalities, so on and so forth. Um, our time together today is not therapy or counseling. Uh, we're just gonna share some of our experiences, maybe some of the stuff we've learned, and we just really hope that, that it helps at least some of you. Um, at the end of the day, um, nothing that we say is more important than being 
uh, Christ-centered, then having a relationship with him, uh, that supersedes anything you hear us say here today. So thank you for having us. Okay. So let's dive in. A couple of weeks ago as we began this message series, we threw out there that the culture in the family is so changed. Uh, years ago in the family, mom and dad, the kids, and there was just thumb of expectation, hard discipline. I mean, boom, boom, boom. I mean, just bare. And not a lot of love and affection. But today the culture is so changed. And now it's swung the other direction where parents, I mean, they're just so afraid to discipline, so afraid to, to kind of have the structure. And it's just love your kids, love your kids, love your kids, love your kids, and just kind of build them all up. And as a result, we have these people in the world called helicopter parents. And, you know, kind of hovering in this last week, I heard from the school administrators about bulldozer parents, and those are parents who bulldoze over teachers and coaches because they believe their kids are miss perfect and miss little goody two-shoes, and oh, my kid could never do that, and they're special and all that sort of stuff. But in that mix, there still is a tiger mom, and a tiger mom, or a tiger dad, but really tiger moms who say that no sleepovers, no fun, only A's are accepted, B pluses are not good enough. They even go to teachers and because this is a standard we have. Only have lessons. You got to have violin lessons. You got to have this this sports lesson. Be this activity. That 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 that. And no, just really no fun. So we have this intermix in our in our culture, and we have kids that are just not prepared for life. So could you just kind of address however you feel led that? That reality and what it's doing to our kids. So the world has changed. And uh, for those of us who have adult kids, even in the uh, 20 or so years uh, that have, you know, these last 20 or so years, the world has changed. It's changed because of technology mainly, uh, as well as probably some other social uh, things. But what has happened is that we parents have gotten to where we don't want to see our kids unhappy or suffer. We want them to feel good, and we'll talk more about that, I think, later. But one of the problems is that we don't let them fail. We do. We jump into schools. We go see the teacher. Um, we check their grades online. I think that's probably the worst thing that ever happened was for parents to be able to check kids' grades online. I mean, I just can imagine all the people at work logging into their school, their kids, to see what they made on a test. Um, we've become obsessed with our kids' our kids' accomplishments. We've become obsessed with our kids uh, making things, being successful. And if they don't, we go and try to bail them out or we try to make it right. And what that does is it cheats them of the opportunity to fail. We want our kids to fail when it's little things so they learn to live right. And so when life, when they grow up and bigger things happen, they'll be able to handle it successfully. Every time we run in and our kid has made a C on a test because she didn't study, and we call and we gripe at the teacher, what we've done is we've, we've told our kid, you're not capable, you can't fix this, you can't make this right. And what we need to do is we need to step back and let our kids stumble and fall. And we need to lovingly be there when they do. We love them through it, but we don't bail them out of it. You said something earlier about technology and about how kids have all this, it's changed their view of their parents yes. because they go to the tech. Could you, could you address that? Yes, yeah, so, I, and I, I learned, kind of realized this when I was working at the Discipline Center here in BISD, but um, one of the things that's happened is it used to be that the teacher was the keeper of knowledge in the classroom. When I was a kid, the te my history teacher had a set of encyclopedias behind him, and if I had a question, you know, who was the 17th president, either he knew or he could look it up. Well, now every kid has a phone. We all know who the 17th president of the United States is in about three seconds. So knowledge does not carry the weight that it used to carry. It simply does not. There is not a math problem that can't be solved on a phone or a smartphone. There isn't any piece of history. But what adults have is wisdom. 
And that's what we bring to life and what we can teach our children. So it's not knowledge, it's wisdom that we can convey. So this thing of, go, of, of rushing up to school, to talk to the coach, to talk to the parent, to the teacher, that I rescue and take care of that, you don't recommend that? No. Don't pay for a single ticket ever. Uh, Jordan has like this world record. I think he has 19, and he, I've never paid one penny. Ralph and I have never paid a penny for a ticket. He went and got a job when he was 15. He's paid for every one. Mom, I left my homework at home. I left my homework. At, I, I, I'm going to get a zero. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, if you leave things at home, what do you do? I, I, I'm a, I go to work. If I leave something at home, I explain it maybe to my boss. I see what I can do. But we don't need to be constantly. Now, by the way, I want to be real clear, too. This, I'm not talking about the occasion. I'm not talking about your really good kid who really never gets in trouble, and it's mm. one exception. I'm talking about a pattern of a kid consistently, consistently calling you to bail them out. I'm not talking about the one-offs, right? This is when kids, because what they've done is they've learned where you're weak. They've learned your weak spot. Like, oh, I can't let my kid fail. So what they're going to do, they've figured out your vulnerability. Mom's not going to let me fail no matter what, so I can screw up as much as I want, as long as I want, and she'll always be there. I think I heard both of you say that the kids figure out the parents before the parents figure out the kids, and the kids are often running the house, not the parents. The parents just think they are, yeah. but the kids are running the show. The kids are smarter than the parents. The kids are smarter than the parents. And they get to pay more attention to you. You're distracted. You got grown-up things to do. But they, they really do pay attention to They're studying you. Yeah, so and not natural consequences like Ms. Kim said. Those are very important. To let them just happen, whether it's at school, principal's office, something with the teacher, what have you. As they get older, it may involve law enforcement or whatnot, mm. but you want to allow natural consequences, for the most part, to take place so they can, they can build... Um, all kinds of character by allowing that to happen. Let's just talk about that healthy structure uh, uh, in the household, in the family. Right there in your message notes, I'm going to invite you to make a triangle, draw a triangle, a big enough triangle, and in the middle of that, put child. If you have one child, you may want to put the names of your kids. You can do that. Maybe you want to put the names of your kids or your grandkids in, the, in that triangle and make it big enough where you can write a word along each side of each side. A triangle has three sides in case some of you fail geometry, you know, and just so you know. And don't Google a triangle. I'll just tell you there's three sides. You connect all three of them, the points, and that's a triangle. And so we'll do that here. And why don't you kind of describe this parenting structure or home could you do that, Casey? Sure. So we're going to put a, a word in each one of the triangle sides. And I'm going to read uh, almost the whole paragraph here. And then part of it towards the end will give us those words. So here it goes. This is a parenting style, basically. It's called the, the parenting triangle. The safe home is a home where children have limits, structure, and boundaries. The limits protect children from others and themselves. Structure is needed for children to feel safe. Boundaries limit children from inappropriate intrusions of various kinds and limit their engaging in inappropriate behaviors. Here we go. One children, once children have a safe and secure family and home in which to grow and develop, they simply need parents or a parent who loves them. That's warmth. Pick a side and put warmth. The first word is warmth. I'll write down warmth. A parent who is consistent, write down consistency. That also uh, can be interpreted as security, right? Consistency. And last but not least, firmness. The non-punitive kind is what they recommend. So you have warmth, consistency, and firmness. And when you have those three in the home, what's the most, what, what's the most likely outcome in, in children? What, what, what do you see? Well, as a parent, you have more of a, a balanced parenting style, right? You're not leaning towards being authoritarian or being neglectful or permissive. 
and just letting them kind of round the, uh, run the household, but you have more of an authoritative, balanced household. And children just, just uh, they just tend to behave better, and, which is what most of us want, right? Hopefully most of us want our children to be able to take in our values, principles, and ideals, particularly good ones. And in a household that is balanced, uh, a lot of that why do that happens? Can you expound on consistency a little bit? Because that's one of the things that I hear and see, even hear from teenagers, my parents are so inconsistent. Kind of talk about the importance of that and the lack of that and what happens. Can you do that? I think when you when think of consistency, you're thinking of a daily thing, right? Just think of every ritual you have at home as a parent, as a spouse as well. I mean, it's just all about uh, modeling and leading by example. And consistency it's about what you have your kids do at home to help out. Consistency is about the way you talk to, to your family, how you communicate. Consistency is about uh, them knowing that you're going to be there, patient and loving uh, and show warmth, and, and also that you're going to be firm if they do something they're not supposed to do, that sort of thing. Is the opposite of firm permissive? Is that what you meant a while ago when you said you see that happening in some families where there's permissiveness? Yeah, that, that's actually a parenting style. Or okay. If okay. Some of you may be familiar with those styles, and permissive would be the parent that just lets the kid kind of run the household, right? And uh, where there are very few rules or structures, uh, the, the foundation is not really uh, set in a way uh, that kids can thrive. Kids crave boundaries. They want them. They want an organized household, just like you want an organized place to work at as an mm. adult. Mm. Right. If you went to work and it was just always chaos, always chaos, it'd drive you crazy. And kids need that same thing in the home is what you're saying. And it's easier said than done, but it's, yeah. it's possible. Okay. Let's talk about technology, the culture of technology and the cell phone a little bit more kind of what you're seeing happen in that dynamic mm -hmm. there, Kim. So cell phones are uh, our best friend and our worst enemy. Uh, they have uh, basically taken over many of our, uh, our lives if we have let them. With kids in particular, first of all, we need to set a good example uh, as parents. One of the things that uh, research is showing real clearly is that parents are not maintaining eye contact with their kids like they used to because they're on the phone. Uh, this is critical to child development, critical. Even mothers feeding their babies, whereas used to, like when I fed my kids, I looked into their eyes. That's actually how they get identity. I mean, my, like my brain, my pupils actually dilate the baby is actually looking, I'm looking into my baby's eyes. Now, moms are texting while they feed their babies. This is very dangerous. This is not just a distraction. It's not a way to fill time. It is hurting our children. The other piece of research that I read just this week was talking about going out to eat and moms taking their, it was a, it, this was about moms in particular, but it could be dads, uh, taking their kids out to eat like at a McDonald's. And the, the child literally trying to grab his mom's face to look at him, and she slapped his hand away because she was on the phone. She was texting. So we're in, a, we're in a booth. We're at a restaurant. We're together. And if mom, when mom is a 1,000 miles away looking at Facebook or looking at Instagram or looking at somebody else's life instead of being in her own life and being with her own kids, it is sending a very dangerous message to our kids that they are not as important as somebody else across the ocean that we don't even know. So I would say be very careful with phone use. No phones at mealtime when you're eating together. No phones. And also, this is going to be hard. This would be a hard habit to break uh, for some people. But I, am, I would not allow kids to have phones in their room at night at all. Zero. Because for many reasons... As Y'all, remember that saying, what happens after midnight is no good? Believe me, your kids are on the phone after midnight. They just are. They're texting, they're talking, they're chatting, they're snapping. There's all kinds of shenanigans going on at night while we're in dreamland. So, phones are out. The other part is when you look at that blue light, that uh, the screen, it wakes up the part of the brain 
that needs to be sleeping. It actually interferes with REM sleep, which is where we get our rest so we can go to school tomorrow and do well or go to work tomorrow and do well. So I would be very careful about phones. I had, I had a teacher stop me after the last worship time who said last week on Wednesday, they had this, all their kids were just kind of disruptive and come do a little read. They all had been on their phones till two, most of them till two and three in the yeah. morning. And so they weren't paying attention. They weren't, act, they weren't doing their homework. They weren't engaged. It was just very problematic. Yes. So that, that is a real issue going on. Mm -hmm. So what you have a suggestion about before mealtime with phones, with families. What, 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 what's your kind of suggestion to families? What to do with that? Uh, well, earlier, Ms. Kim said, hey, uh, uh, I have phones at the, at the dinner table. That should just be uh, not allowed, period. And, you know, as a parent, it's good for you to get creative, right? Uh, get, get as creative as you possibly can. Maybe have like a uh, pre-dinner minute where everybody's welcome to bring their phones to the dinner table and get all the texting, Instagramming, and everything else out of the way. And after that minute, we put them aside, and then we get going with dinner, if that makes any sense. And be attentive to the families. Fully, yes. Okay, all right. All right, there was a lot we could do. You want to say, got something else? You know, um, the whole Walmart thing you had here, I thought that was really good, and we never talked about, oh, about a, a, a little practical example. You were talking about, 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 talking about the, uh, the discipline issue? Yes. Okay, well, let's, let's hang on to that. Okay. Let's hang on to that. Let's talk about the self-image, self-esteem real quick, like, and then let's go there about the discipline. Make sure we come to that. So, what we have happening in our culture, we have all these moms and dads and grandparents concerned about their little kids' self-esteem. And there's a self-esteem movement that, that started several years ago. Oh, you just kind of build up your self-esteem. And so you always tell them these things that they're awesome, they're wonderful, they're this, they're that. But the research shows that's really counterproductive and not helping as they grow older. And instead of self-esteem, it's more about self-image. So in the home, address that, what the problem with the self-esteem is, and how do you build self-image? How do you do that? Because there's a difference. Okay? I'll, I can start and you can wrap it up. So uh, self-image self comes from work. Self-image is grown from within by being a participant in the family, by having chores, by having expectations, by having responsibilities. Self-image does not come from making all A's. It's great when they work hard and make all A's. But self-image doesn't come from that. It comes from the hard work it took to make the A. Self-image is created from within. And we can't give it from the outside. It's not possible. Self-image comes from God and from telling our kids that God created them uniquely and for a purpose. And just because this happened that they didn't like doesn't change the fact that God made them for a specific purpose. So self-image comes from in here. Self-esteem comes from somebody telling you a bunch of stuff. Yes. And, it, it's, and Casey can speak to this more. Why don't you address, go ahead and talk to that a little sure. bit. So I think both self-image and self-esteem come from a household where a household that's not anxious, if that makes any sense, of peaceful, loving, mm. structured, balanced, that parenting triangle we just talked about. In particular... Uh, praising your kids, um, it's the whole praising of a child is an adult's need. Children don't need to be praised. If you were to pick a praise, it would be related to work ethic. Uh, you work very hard, um, that sort of thing. Instead of praising intelligence or praising looks, you are the most beautiful or the most intelligent, that tends to backfire. And kids don't even want to get out of their comfort zone in terms of their, the challenges they put in front of them, like honors classes or AP classes. They can become afraid that they will no longer be the smartest or the most beautiful. So praise every now and then is not a bad thing. Whichever flavor you decide to do that, but I, I would recommend you instead build character through praising work ethic. Uh, like Ms. Such Kim a, was give some examples about. of that. Give some well, let me see if I can bring examples. this here. I have a really bad memory. Let me give you some good phrases here. That's difficult, but I think you can do it. That's tough, but I have confidence that you will do well. I think you can do that. Um, 
you can just straight up say, um, you work really hard, that's the reason all these, these good grades are happening, instead of saying you're the smartest, if that makes any sense. Okay, all right. so reinforcing things that they're doing, that they did it well and they can grow better and that, that sort of thing, self-image as opposed, because self-image means I still have room to grow. Self-esteem is I'm just special just because I'm special. The other, one of the things I read about self-image also is that, uh, goes exactly to your point, is that when kids take risks, whether they, whether they quote, succeed or fail, we want to praise them when they take a risk and take a chance. Try to take that AP class. Go for that AP class. Taking risks, when I was reading on this, it's one of the top eight regrets that old senior citizens have is that they didn't take more chances when they were young. We want to encourage our kids to take chances not, and not know the result. And if we keep stepping in and making the result happen, we're not encouraging them to take risks. So you're not praising the outcomes. You're praising what's done between the outcome, that, that, that work and that, that sort of stuff. Okay, all right. Let's, let's talk about discipline a little bit. That's a common thing about discipline. Um, first of all, we'll just ask, what is the purpose of discipline? It's important in the home. What's the purpose of discipline? What, what, why, why, what's the purpose of it? Discipline is to help kids know how to discipline themselves. Self-discipline. We want kids to learn how to make choices that are good for themselves later when we're not around. So for authoritarian parents, uh, the uh, drill sergeant mm -hmm. type parent or the bulldozer type parent, mm -hmm. uh, when we have those kind of parents, what happens is kids learn to take orders and they learn to mind, so they'll mind you to your face, but inside they're full of resentment and anger. But those are the kids who are most at risk for taking risky behaviors in adolescence because they haven't learned to do anything but follow. So once they quit following mom and dad, they're going to follow the kids at school. Okay, yeah. The other part would be um, about, about making good decisions is when we are helicopter parents and we run in and fix everything, we don't teach kids how to solve their own problems. Yeah, sometimes I see the discipline is the parent owning the problem, and you want to discipline where the kid owns the problem and the resolution of it instead of you doing it, correct? Right. And, and I will just say this, and I'm going to hand this over to Casey because he has a lot, knows a lot more than me about this. But I really remember when Jordan was about in the sixth or seventh grade, and he was struggling with school. And, but I was struggling with his school. And I realized, like, I was more concerned about him. And I went to a Love and Logic conference, and I did, and it changed my life. But one of the things that happened is I came home, and I said, you know, Jordan, I've been cheating you. And I said, you know, I've been more worried about your school than you have. And I said, you know what? I only went to seventh grade once. If you want to go twice, you can. You'll make a whole new group of friends. You'll be the oldest in the class. In fact, if you go three times, you could even drive to seventh grade. And I truly meant that, y'all. I was like, I, for some reason, God, like, literally took that yoke off of me. I'm not kidding. It was a spiritual experience. God took that yoke off of me of taking responsibility for his school. His grades went up. He didn't make the best grades in the world, but he's a college graduate today. He lives by himself today. He pays all of his bills today. And I didn't... I just was free as a bird after that. So I'm letting y'all know you don't have to make, take, all, take care of your kids' school. Okay. So you want to say something about the discipline? You, you want me to bring up the example, the question? Was that about uh, uh, moms at the, at the store with a kid, right? Yeah. Okay. So, so in, in ter bottom line, discipline, we just want them to stop doing something, right? Or to do it differently. So we're shaping behavior, right? In Love and Logic, like Ms. Kim said, oh, man, that's a good parenting uh, uh, education course to get if, if you ever uh, are wondering what a good one looks like. That, that's an awesome No, you know, i got to ask this question. i got to ask you this question. Sure. Okay. When a parent disciplines out of anger okay. and they just lose their temper, I mean, shouting, yelling, cussing, ah, bah, what's happening? What's the kid experiencing? What are we teaching the kids? Uh, I think... A good thing to write down would be that what you focus on grows. 
So if you focus on a parenting style that is of punishment or fining or taking something away, like a negative reinforcement, then uh, that tends to uh, grow. And they learn that. They learn anger. They learn what uh, will push or press your buttons, if that makes any sense. Um, and then they'll, they can use that against you. They can uh, end up doing that with others at school or uh, with their siblings, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, is that kind of what you were going yeah. with? That Walmart example, I'm really ex uh, interested in, okay. in you bringing that up. Do you remember what yeah, you did Yeah, I do. So, so, so a mom's at the store. You call yeah. us. The mom's at the store. She got this little four-year-old, five-year-old, touch, 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 touch. And the mom says, stop it. Kid keeps doing it. A little bit later, stop it. Kid keeps doing it. Stop it. And over and over and over again. And the parent, ah, well, and they cool, explode. Man. This is much better than I envisioned. This is the first time we do this practical example. So, 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 what, so you're, you're pretending to be the child. Just, so just oh, I am a child. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm talking <laughs> But I needed that for the example. It's <laughs> okay. Great. So, so what does so, mom so do? So it would be you? like at Walmart, right? What happens when you say no? It goes in one ear and out the other, right? Or stop doing that. Or if you, uh, it may work temporarily if you said, no, stop doing that, or you just get out of character for a while, raise your voice. But sooner or later, they'll come back and do the same behavior at home, at Walmart, wherever you're at. Instead, this is really practical. I'm giving you pearls here, okay? <laughs> three, three steps. I understand you'd like to do that, but we don't do that here. But what you can do is help me with the vegetables over here. What did I just do? Redirect. That's it. I heard a couple of you say that. You can call it different things, but you're basically giving them something to do. Take the words no out of your vocabulary and try to replace them, particularly in talking with children about discipline, with, I understand you like to do that. It can be punching. It can be taking something. It can be whatever it is. But we don't, and make sure your tone of voice changes, but we don't do that here. But what you can do is, is, is this other thing. So you're reasserting your family values or what we do. Yes. You're teaching what we do as a family. Absolutely. Okay. Opportunity right. to do that, yes. Okay. All right. We need to stop here and have a transition uh, and then kind of come back. So we're going to our guest services. We're going to take up our offering here. We're going to take us a whew, little, little break. And we're going to have a little video clip here that I think will kind of lighten the mood for some of the parents and, and marriages. And then we'll wrap this thing up here with some stuff, okay? So let's receive our offering. All right, we, we have about five to six minutes here to cover quickly two big subjects, and we got to be spot on. First one, a couple comes into my office, have this happen all the time, dating or married, and I see this happen all the time. Um, someone's dating six months, everything is great, they hit a rough patch, and the first thing he or she thinks, we're, we're breaking up, we're done. Do it again, six months, oh, man, we're done. I see it happen in marriage. They come in my office, they have this same fight, this same issue over and over and over again. The first thought is, hey, we're breaking up, I'm done, I'm quitting. And sometimes they quit, then they go to another person, then another person, have this same issue. Or, or they stay married and they fight over the same thing over and over and over and over again. What do you say, what's going on? in that couple, in those couple, what's, what's happening? So one of the things that we were talking about and is that when we enter into a marriage or into a relationship, we bring with us basically all of our stuff, our childhood, our baggage, whatever. And so if I am dating or marrying someone and I'm operating at about a 30 or a three, I'm going to marry another three. That's who I'm going to be attracted to. I'm going to be drawn to that, uh, this, about the same functioning level as me. And then uh, I can't expect a 10 marriage if I'm operating as a three. So the responsibility lies to me to become a better spouse, to become a better partner. And I know Casey's going to expand on that quite a bit. The, the part about the cycling over and over and over, we're going to always attract the same level of person because we are still unresolved with our own stuff. So we've got to take care of our own stuff, however that we want to do that, through therapy, through groups, support groups, that kind of stuff. 
Um, okay. Anything else? No. Well, no. I think I think that's. Why don't you kind of kind of pick up there and kind of drill that home a little bit deeper about taking care of yourself? Sure. I think uh, it's important to get a catchy phrase in here. Um, there is no such thing as control. There's only the illusion of control. We try to control our significant others in relationships oftentimes. There's only one person in control, and, th and he's upstairs. He has nothing to do with us, right? And once that hits home and you understand that there's only an illusion of control, we could be gone tomorrow if that makes any sense. Then you can apply that to, to, towards your relationships. So if you're having a hard time, you feel stuck in relationships, a way to look at an argument would be that it takes two to tango, right? It, if you're in a, in a relationship living under the same roof, uh, first of all, you may have different flavors of what uh, your weaknesses are or what you could do better, right? But at the end of the day, you're about the same level like Ms. Kim said. And every argument you have, you have some responsibility over it. Any big thing that happens in your marriage, you can find at least 5% or whatnot that you might have been responsible for. Even if you think your significant other was 95% responsible for what took place or 99% responsible, you find that 1% and work on it. Because if what you're trying to do is tell the other person how to behave or how to change, that's not gonna work. But guess what? If you work on your 1%, your 50, your 40, your 60, it magically, trust me, magically, the other person starts coming up with you. Because if you're a five, or I usually use a scale of zero to 100, if you're, if you're around a 50, nobody is 100, by the way, uh, your, your significant other is going to be right around there, right? Maybe 47 or 53. But if you start working on yourself and now you're a 60, 65, 70, that person comes along with you. The same goes down, if that makes any sense. So I hope that. Yeah, I said we, so many so relationships. You're, you're expecting the other person to perform at a seven or eight or nine, and you're acting at a three or something on a scale of one to ten, and that's just not realistic. You got to work on yourself. Work on yourself in the marriage and see how the marriage changes. Okay, we'll leave that alone for just one last thing. We we have to hit this real quickly. We're seeing more and more teenagers engage in sexual activity, particularly young girls, around the age of twelve and thirteen. That's way too young. And every, all the research shows that they're really not looking for sex, but they're being sexually active. What's happening in our homes, in our culture, that's just kind of opening the door for kids younger and younger engaging in sexual activity before they're ready, way before they're ready. I can tell you what will help girls not become sexually active too early, and that is the radical, what do you call that? Irrational. Irrational love of a male, of a father, a stepfather, a grandfather, an uncle. If there's not a father in the home, someone who takes that place. A girl, a young girl needs to feel protected. She needs to feel that she has a man to protect her. If she does not find that at home, she will look for that elsewhere, and it will be in an age-inappropriate way. So what we want to do is we want to have dads who are firm, loving, that same exact triangle, but who set those good, firm limits for their daughters. The kind of dads that say, no, he's going to walk up to the front door and ring the doorbell before he comes to pick you up. Mm. The kind of dad who says, you're not going to be on the phone after 10. Whatever it is, it's your value system. But we need dads to protect daughters so that daughters feel that unconditional love. It gives some kind of substantial safety net so that they don't feel like they have to go seek it outside of the relationship. The other part of that, real quickly, is something that is critically important, and that's not to let our girls grow up so fast. When we look on uh, at media, magazines and stuff, we see littler and littler girls... Um, going, doing all these grown-up things, getting updos, getting false eyelashes, getting fake fingernails, getting um, mani-pedis frequently, um, doing all kinds of adult things. 
and it's okay occasionally. I mean, we all are going to do those special things, um, you know, maybe a, a little dance or something. But when we encourage our little girls to look like adult women, when we let them do all those things, by the time they're 13 or 14, if they've done all that, there's only one thing left to do, and that's have sex. We, that's what we see. That's what the research shows. So slow down the growth. Okay. Uh, I kind of need to wrap us up here, okay? In the role that you allow me to serve as your pastor, there are a couple of things I need to say as we bring this, this time to close. We'll be back two more weeks on this My Crazy Family, but this, I need to say this to you. We have too many people in this church and in their, in their families that when things hit rough patch, your first thought is break up. And I want you to change your language. Instead of thinking break up, I want you to think grow up. Some of you need to write that down. Write down break up, put a line through it, and put grow up. I'm going to step up to a higher level. And break up is way down on the list. Grow up, step up, learn, me get better, me figure me out, me be better, and focus on that. Second, in our homes, we got to stop sheltering our kids, and we got to teach them some stuff. Focus on their self-image, not their self-esteem. You focus on self-image, self-esteem will come around. But that means you having chores and have the, turn your homework on time, be in bed at a certain time, have expectations, and then show them how to be successful and mean those expectations. You'll be amazed at how much they'll grow. But you got to expect some stuff from your kids. They have abilities to do stuff. Some of your kids growing up, they don't have to empty a dishwasher, set a table, change a light bulb. They just have no skills because we have not taught them. Or expected them to make their bed. My goodness, make the bed. And here's the last thing God's got to be at the center. God has got to be right smack dab in the middle of your family, not just on Sunday morning, some ancillary God, this divinity. You come here and show up for a little few minutes, and then you go home and you live like hell. Or you forget that God even exists. Seven days a week, God's got to be in the center. And that means as a family, you pray to God. Not just on Sundays, but you pray to God often. And when your family or marriage gets in trouble, you say, let's go ask God for help. Hey, it's okay to admit you need help. That's the first step to recovery. I need help. Say, God, we need some help here. Could you please guide us and let your kids hear you say that? Let your spouse hear you say that. And then you got to go to this book. When you don't know what to do, this book... This book is a guide map in your family. you got to be in this book all the time and practice what it teaches. Practice it. I'm going to give you two quick scriptures really quick, and I'm going to pray over you really quick. And you're not even going to know how these apply to this. I'm just going to read it to you. 1 Thessalonians 5. Somebody write this down. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 14 and 15. I've got written down the margin, families and marriages. Parenting, I got it down. Here's what it says. Warn those who are idle. Warn people who are, you got to warn kids that are idle. And they're disruptive. If you got a kid that's disruptive and idle, you got to warn them. Same with the mate. Encourage the disheartened. Encourage people in the family that are broken. Yeah, we lift each other up. It says help the weak. Hey, in families, somebody's going to be stronger, but the stronger helps the weaker. So you help each other when you're weak. And then it goes on, it says, be patient with everyone. I think it's fascinating in marriages particularly. We all want people to be patient with us, but we're not patient with one another. Be patient with everyone. And then it says, make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong. I think that's pretty clear. Stop getting back at the other, even if it's somebody you're divorced from. Let it go. Stop the payback. It's not helping your kids, punishing people. 
And then it goes on. Do what's good for each other. Do what's good for everyone. God's got to be at the center, and you got to practice what it says. And then in James 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you find out your spouse is psycho. <laughs> it says, when you face many trials, it's a trial when you find out your spouse is psycho. And you're all married to psychos in some way. Did you know that? Psycho means you're delusional. You're out of touch with reality. Some of you are out of touch with reality about your marriages. Consider pure joy when you find that out because you know that the testing of your faith will produce perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work. Don't quit. Let it keep working in the marriage so that you may be mature. In other words, so you can grow up. Some of you need to put on your big boy pants or your big boy panties. Can I just say it? And grow up. I just did, didn't I? And grow up. Sometimes the kids are more grown up than the parents, and the parents act like junior high, and the kids are the moderator. Grow up, mature, be complete, and when that happens, you will not lack anything. But this book's got to be. God, this family stuff, it's hard. And these relationships, they're so good and so wonderful with God, but sometimes they're, they're, they're a pain. Because we human beings, God, this sinful nature, this depravity can be so disruptive. And we're so egocentric, God. It's all about us. God, just forgive us. God, I pray that you would, you would move us to take all the information and the things we have heard from this place and, and to have conversations and to apply them. And as we go forward, God, even in this message series, you will continue to speak and beyond and just help us grow up, help us mature so that our kids be raised in a home where they get to see Jesus in their mom and in their dad by how they love each other and forgive each other and work through conflict and just speak the truth in love just like Jesus did and consistent and warm and God when that happens our families will honor you and the world will be different and I pray it will happen in Jesus name Hey, can we say thank you to our guests here and the good work they did and what they brought? Great, great job. We're going to be out in the crossing. We'd love to meet you. Get your date night kit. Bye.